Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is July 12th, 2013, and my guest is Michael Lind, the co-founder of the New America Foundation and the policy director of the Economic Growth Program there. He's the author of numerous books of history, political journalism, fiction, poetry, and children's literature. His latest book is Land of Promise, An Economic History of the United States. Michael, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk today about two articles you've written recently, and we may get into other things as well. But the two articles, one was on libertarianism, the other was on economics, and they've created a bit of a firestorm on the on the web. Uh, let's start with libertarianism. You, you asked the rhetorical question, if libertarianism is so great, why hasn't it been tried before? Is that a fair assessment of your argument? And if so, I'll, can you elaborate? Well, it is a fair assessment, and it was inspired by a conversation I had at a party uh, where most of the crowd was libertarian, where I asked a libertarian economist, who shall remain unnamed, uh, have, why are there no countries of which you guys approve? Uh, because all that he or other libertarian uh, thinkers can provide are examples of countries with particular policies they like, so they like uh, Chile's uh, Pinochet-era Social Security privatization. They like Swiss banking laws. Uh, but they can't point to an actual country which is largely libertarian in most, if not all, of its policies. It doesn't have to be exclusively libertarian. But there aren't even any predominantly libertarian countries. And so that was my rhetorical challenge to them. Uh, if you can't point to a single country – out of nearly 200 sovereign states on this planet in 2013 that you approve of, then isn't your ideology fundamentally unworldly and utopian? Uh, and the responses were, uh, the, the most plausible response, I think, was that we're pioneers of the future, and in it, perhaps in the year 3013, uh, countries will be libertarian, but... It's unfair to ask that question now. It would be like saying, why are there no democracies during the Dark Ages? So I thought, well, yeah, at least you can make that case. Uh, but uh, uh, some, the least plausible response to my question, why are there no libertarian countries, were those that said, well, there was a libertarian country once upon a time in a golden age. It was the United States between the Civil War and uh, the Progressive Era. When you had large industrial corporations, but child labor, no regulation, no unions, and so on. And I thought that answer, even from a libertarian perspective, uh, was not very smart because the United States between the 1870s and, let's say, the 1900s was by no means a laissez-faire society. We had high tariffs. The government was intervening uh, to help uh, businesses crush uh, uh, strikers in the railroad and other industries. So uh, – the argument that the libertarian paradise lies in the distant future, at least you can make that argument. But you can't plausibly say that the libertarian paradise existed in the past, either in the United States or in a, another country. I want to come back to both of those those points, the utopian point and the United States in the 
in that alleged golden era. But I first want to I want to ask you about the the example you got back from your cocktail party. I'm surprised that anyone would suggest that the Pinochet era uh, Chilean security has anything to do with libertarianism. Uh, it was a military dictatorship, and the social security program was a public was forced savings. It's true you were free to invest the money in private activity, private investment, but it, it's not much of a libertarian social security system. Well, well, you've 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 put your finger on one of the contradictions of modern libertarian thought, because they argue that what are in fact public programs that have some elements of choice. Uh, are really market programs or libertarian programs. And you're quite right. It, it's completely incoherent, uh, the, the contrast with their principles. So, for example, most libertarians, at least the politically influential ones in Washington, favor vouchers for schools. But a school voucher, if it's funded by the government, is just as much a government program uh, as government money going directly to a single district school. Right. Uh, yeah, so merely I introducing totally the choice... That. Merely introducing the element of choice does not uh, make it a free market program. You're still taxing people. Uh, you're simply allowing the taxes are going to the consumer rather than to the producer. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. In fact, um, and that that idea is associated with uh, Milton Friedman. I think there is there are other people who claim uh, authorship of the idea, but uh, Milton Friedman advocated that in uh, Capitalism and Freedom. And while well, I, he, if you go back to the 1920s, there was something called voucher socialism. <laughs> so you can argue that a lot of these Friedmanite proposals, you're quite right, it comes from Milton Friedman, but it really has more to do with voucher socialism than it does with free markets. Yeah, and I, so I agree with you in the sense that it's certainly a government, still a government program, uh, and I would argue that the political side of that uh, program would be more worrisome than the economic side. I worry that if we had vouchers, that there would be political pressure to increase the amount and for government to get involved with the schools. So, yes, I, I'm against government schooling generally, not replacing the current system with a voucher system. However, Milton Friedman, when he advocated that idea, I think saw it as an improvement. Now, it's, it, he's, Milton was not a utopian in any sense. He, he advocated negative income tax of which some would say, I think correctly, that the earned income tax credit is the descendant of that proposal. And whether he'd like it now, how it's turned out, is a different question. But he certainly advocated a negative income tax as an improvement on the uh, means-based, not the means-based, the uh, in-kind nature of food stamps and housing programs, health care, et cetera. But, yeah, he was not a utopian. Well, I have a lot of time for Milton Friedman. I, I would see Milton Friedman actually – as a neoliberal of the right, rather than a, a truly market fundamentalist libertarian, uh, and you know progressives and centrists can can support a lot of the same programs. For example, uh, there are school vouchers in Sweden, which is a extremely social democratic country with about 50% of its GDP going to government, uh, but but they have uh, local school vouchers and vouchers for other programs. Uh, in the United States, the progressives are defending food stamps which is a voucher program uh, for particular uh, restricted kinds of commodities. So uh, now my own thinking about uh, vouchers is more practical. It's not a matter of uh, libertarian ideology or progressive ideology. Uh, I think that vouchers tend to work uh, where 
you, you have truly competitive markets and also where the number of the recipients of the vouchers is sufficiently small that it doesn't really warp the market very much. So, for example, if you give food stamps to people and let them, you know, let's say buy cereal or preferably something more healthy like fruit, that's not going to drive up the, the price of fruit because you don't have vast sums of subsidy going from the government uh, in, into the market. Uh, and at the same time, you do have a relatively competitive market in produce or in, in cereal, even if it's not perfectly competitive. <clears throat> Where I think uh, vouchers and government subsidies in general are dangerous is when you're pouring government money, and whether it goes through the consumer or the producer, uh, into uh, what economists call imperfect markets, where you don't have lots of small firms competing. You have oligopolies or monopolies, which are able to set their own price. They have, they have what's called market power. Uh, and I think we've seen this in, since the 1960s in both healthcare, thanks to uh, Medicare and Medicaid money, and in higher education, because beginning with the 1960s, for perfectly valid reasons, and I generally approve of federal aid to higher education and also to uh, uh, health care for the elderly and the poor, but when you put government subsidies into an oligopolistic or monopolistic market and you don't have some kind of price control system, then you cannot rely on competition to keep prices down. Well, as, actually, as actually, competition is going to push prices up when you've subsidized large groups of people that way. And that's exactly Well, that's right. And, then you, and then you get this political feedback effect where the doctors or the universities, you know, with their tuitions, raise their prices. The producers raise yeah. their prices by the amount of the subsidy. They then tell their clients, you know, the, the doctor's patient or the parents of the university students, uh, say, oh, isn't it terrible? Prices are going up. Write your congressman. Uh, and tell him or her that they need to increase the subsidy, right? <laughs> so you get this uh, vicious feedback effect yeah, you don't, in which the producers can keep driving up their own prices. Yeah, you don't need you don't need not much market power to really make that argument. It's that uh, if if there were limited numbers of people, or if the if the skills that are necessary to provide the services are, are limited, as they are with medical care or, or education. Uh, even though new people can enter it, the field, even though there are, there's competition among the, the providers, a subsidy in a, in a competitive market like that will push up the price, and it will it will do exactly as you said. It'll encourage the uh, the political lobbying to to make the subsidy larger and continue the problem. I'd say we've done something quite similar in housing as well. Well, I, th- I think we're going to see this as a result of Obamacare. Uh, that the initial tendency will be to drive up prices because you have all of this new money flowing into the system. Uh, now, if you accompany it with some kind of uh, price regulation, uh, then you can deal with that that uh, problem. But if you don't, then the producers may simply jack up their prices. Absolutely. Let's go back to your, your um, uh, conversation of about whether libertarianism has uh, has been tried or not in the United States and whether that's a realistic observation and then the, the question whether it's just a utopian ideal. I, th- I think to some extent you've, you've created something of a straw man. Th- there are people like Milton Friedman who want government – I think Milton, although he'd sometimes call himself a libertarian, would have defined himself more explicitly as a classical liberal, someone who wants right. smaller government, limited government, smaller government. He's not an anarchist. And certainly anarchists, uh, anarcho-capitalists, people who are at the extreme of the libertarian uh, position who make the case for zero government, it's an interesting position. It's, uh, 
I'd like to talk to you about why that might not be sustainable if it ever were tried, but it certainly has never been tried. Uh, but it seems to me that the more realistic uh, and, and uh, certainly the view I hold that, that I'd like to see some government but a dramatically smaller one, the fact that that hasn't been tried uh, doesn't seem to be much of an argument against it, mainly because nations don't make decisions. Individuals do. Politicians vote in certain ways. You know, if I said to you, no one tries chocolate ice cream, no one buys chocolate ice cream, and therefore it must not be very good, that's a pretty reasonable claim. But the fact that no nation has adopted a classical liberal state uh, ever, and you could we could debate about England or the United States at certain time periods, but the fact that no one's adopted it, that t- what, why would that tell you anything about whether it's a good idea or not? Well, because you know, what is the first principle of the state? You know, even in the classical liberal tradition, I mean, I consider myself in the Lockean liberal tradition. Uh, I consider myself a Lockean of the center left, and that's not a contradiction in terms. If you go back to John Locke and the founders and classical natural rights theory of the 17th and 18th century, it's all about war and violence. That is what it is all about, Uh, a subject that the so-called modern libertarians tend to not even talk about, or at least it's kind of an afterthought. But if you go back to the social contract libertarians, the whole idea is that a state of nature is a state of war. It's a state of anarchy. And you cannot protect your rights uh, by yourself uh, against the neighbors who want to kill you and, uh, 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 or enslave you. And so therefore, humans, you know, first tribes and then city-states, and it doesn't have to be a modern democratic nation-state, but the whole point of political entities is for people to pool their coercive powers – against these external parasites, these human predators who are, uh, have, who are trying to kill or enslave you, and also the people within your own community, the potential tyrants who are trying to kill or enslave you. And ultimately, uh, it's pooled coercive power. That is at the heart of true classical liberal theory. What I think the people who call themselves classical liberals now are not actually in that Hobbesian, Lockean, you know, 17th century natural rights tradition, which is obsessed with creating bounded territorial units with military power and police power uh, to prevent anarchic violence. Well, I don't know. I really come more out of a 19th century kind of Proudhonian, you know, anarchist tradition, which assumes that the natural state of human beings is, is sociability and cooperation. And one can have an interesting anthropological argument as to which if either of these, you know, corresponds to the world as it is. Uh, but I think this is a uh, when when you know people start to t- talk about, and it's an answer to your question, by the way. The answer to your question is, at least according to the Lockean tradition, if you're surrounded by militaristic, socialistic welfare states, and then you create a libertarian paradise, particularly if it's on a desirable piece of territory, uh, your country's not going to be sovereign for very long. If it cannot mobilize the military and resources and the popular support to defend it from the aggressive non-libertarian neighbors. And I think that's a real flaw. Well, I agree with uh, that. And, I think that's the flaw of, of, of anarchy, uh, but I don't see it as a flaw of classical liberalism. Certainly classical liberals uh, up through the modern era, which would include uh, Robert Nozick uh, in his um, Anarchy State Utopia, uh, certainly made a case for the police state, um, or role for the state in the in provision of police. Uh, certainly – 
I think most classical liberals see a role for national defense, uh, very modest, of course, but but certainly uh, the ability to defend the nation from attack. It's I think it's the rest of it where the interesting stuff lies. Well, okay, but just bear in mind that uh, the people who are thought of as big government liberals, including Theodore Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, they simply think that survival in the modern world requires a more extensive government, even to, for the, the basic uh, liberal state. So you could be a liberal, a classical liberal like J.S. Mill uh, in the late 19th century and think that, well, without violating your classical liberal principles, you want as much private property and as much in, many individual rights as possible in industrial conditions where giant industrial corporations can poison whole landscapes uh, you may simply have to have bigger, more state regulation. It's not that you love the state. It's something you reluctantly con- uh, conclude. And likewise, uh, all of the industrial societies by 1950 had adopted some kind of social insurance schemes or welfare state uh, that was more or less compulsory. Uh, and it wasn't because they loved the state for the sake of the state. You know, they weren't fascists or totalitarians. Uh, it was because the alternatives you know, farm-based family support systems and, and uh, uh, local charity simply had ceased to function uh, when you had a wage-earning majority living in giant industrial cities. Uh, so so I, I think that to dismiss the dominant tradition of the 20th century as not being in the classical liberal tradition, as though it's, you know, some sort of alternate uh, collectivist or status tradition, I think you can justify a lot of the modern welfare state as well as a lot of the modern warfare state on classical liberal grounds. That is, in today's industrial conditions, this is the minimum that you need. The minimum government that you need is vastly bigger than it would have been in the 17th or 18th century. Now, that holds out the possibility that maybe in 200 years, if conditions change, you can have a smaller welfare state and a smaller military. Right. Well, but you're suggesting that the reason that we have a large welfare state, a large corporate welfare state, a large public social welfare state, a large regulatory state. Well, I'm not, I'm not state. defending crony capitalism, but let's look at the social welfare state. Uh, and the it modern sounds British like you are, so go ahead. Well, no, no, the, the modern British welfare state really was a product of World War II, of the beverage report. And the basic idea was we have to guarantee all of these soldiers fighting Hitler that when they come back, we're not going to simply abandon them to destitution and unemployment. Uh, And so, therefore, you had the right to national health insurance, the right to a job, public housing, all of this. It was the reward for fighting in a world war. And the link in the U.S. is not as direct, but it's still there if you think about the GI Bill. So I do think there's a link uh, between – provisions of some kind of degree of economic security to your citizens and the need to have those citizens mobilized in these colossal wars like the world wars. Now, conversely, as I say, if, if you now most liberals and most conservatives ignore that link, let me say that right out. Most progressives think that uh, the social welfare state of the kind we have might have existed just for its own merits in their view without these world wars and without uh, the link between uh, the citizen-soldier and the domestic economic benefits. And a lot of conservatives think, well, we can draft everybody to go fight in foreign lands, but on the other hand, when they come back, well, you know, they're on their own, right? But I'm just saying as a political uh, historian uh, that the link between military service and 
uh, minimal economic security, this has been crucial. Just and, and you also find the same link historically between voting rights and military service. Uh, that is, uh, every expansion of voting rights in the United States has tended to be justified in practice successfully by uh, uh, the rights of soldiers, whether it was the expansion of uh, voting rights for all white males during the War of 1812, uh, and then, of course, the abolition of slavery, and initial voting rights uh, with the Civil War, uh, and so on. Well, it's an interesting point. I, don't, I think it's a bit of a stretch, as you somewhat may agree, that in the United States, that uh, the GI Bill was, yes, that, that was done as a, a way to cushion soldiers' return to civilian life. Uh, many of them did not take advantage of it. Many of them found jobs. It wasn't horrible. They got health care. They didn't starve to death. Uh, they found a roof, to, a job and a roof to put over their head. And in fact, the post-World War II economy was rather uh, remarkably successful despite a very small increase in government activity. Very, very different, yes, from the British case. But l- let's take an example. Uh, let's take an example of, say, such as education, where – as you point out, uh, as part of the – you could say it's part of the safety net that we've decided uh, – someone has decided that education is provided publicly and funded publicly uh, K through 12 and subsidized dramatically in the uh, post-high uh, school years. That has not been a very effective system it seems to me. And so while you can argue that, that it's there because it just seems natural, it's, it's partly there as every one of these programs is, for political reasons that are not about some ideal taking care of people, but there are specific special interests that benefit. In my case, it's I'm one of them. I'm, I'm a you know an academic most of my, my career, and I've been a tremendous beneficiary to my not-so-happy result uh, from these subsidies. And I don't think they've served people very well. They've served me well. Well, well – no, I, I think there are two questions. Let me push back, first of all, as to they haven't been successful. Uh, if you look at the United States, a lot of the stuff about the failure of America's K-12 system is pure propaganda. The data came out recently showing that whites, blacks, and Latinos have steadily improved their academic performance over the last couple of generations. Now, you can say they might have been better under a different system, but what would that system be? Let's look at international comparisons. Uh, the U.S., you know, sometimes there's these alarms in the press about the U.S. instead of being number one or two, is at the, uh, like number 15 or number 12. It's, it's still near the top on math and science and things like that. Well, there's sociological reasons for this, which it's very uh, unpopular to discuss in public because you don't want to reinforce stereotypes, and I certainly don't intend to do this. But if you, uh, look at non-Hispanic whites, in international comparisons, there's something called the PISA scores, P-I-S-A. Non-Hispanic whites in the United States are at the top. They're up there with the kids of Shanghai, China. Uh, and by the way, the Chinese scores are only for Shanghai. It's not for the whole country, which would drag it down. Uh, so what are the two groups that drag down the scores in the United States? It's two groups which, at, for his obvious historical reasons, uh, you know, uh, would do so. One is African Americans who were uh, victimized and, and uh, disenfranchised until only a generation or so ago, two generations ago, and have yet to catch up uh, uh, despite great progress. And the other group is fairly recent immigrants from rural portions of Latin America. And again, there's no big surprise there. If you look at Germany, 
the, the working class and working poor Turkish immigrants and their children, uh, who are at the sort of bottom of the economic spectrum there, do less poorly than the native Germans uh, and drag down the overall German scores. So I want to push back on the idea that the U.S. is, is not uh, uh, does not have a successful educational system. It it it, it does. Of a high literacy you know? rate. Yeah, there, there, there are things it does yeah. fairly well. Uh, I just suspect. Um, now I think it. Now I think it costs too much. Yeah, for that you can yeah. make that case certainly, uh, and you can also make the case uh, that even if it's worked in the past, uh, maybe you need to rethink the model using new technology and and the yeah. internet and so on. And I think that's certainly the case. You know, it's if yeah. So if in 1840 the county commissioners had distance learning and computers and uh, the internet uh, and all of these other technologies, would they have voted to have a one-room schoolhouse with one 19-year-old woman teaching all classes, you know, from first grade through 12th grade? I don't think so. So, so certainly, yeah, you could reinvent. Uh, and I, I, th- I think we're going to see this uh, in, in the next uh, uh, generation. But again, getting back to the libertarians, there, I think a lot of the actual policy proposals which are put forth in the name of libertarianism, uh, some of them are quite sensible, right? You, like, can, uh, you can list uh, them if you want. You could, you could pick a couple <laughs> if they come uh, to mind. Well, well, for example, for-profit universities, I don't know why you should be, people should be against that on, on principle. Uh, progressives tend to be because you know, their electoral uh, and to some degree financial constituency is teachers' unions. Right. I mean, I consider myself a progressive, but, you know, I don't represent the teachers union, so I don't see why you shouldn't be able to think about alternate models. Uh, and the same is true of uh, K through 12. You know, you don't necessarily have to have 30 students to a room, you know, with one uh, teacher who has an ed degree instead of a degree in a particular subject. You could experiment with part of the day at a physical location and part of the day online and so on. So I, I think there's enormous room for experimentation there. Uh, but the thing is, as, and, and as we uh, discussed earlier, libertarians say they're against the government, but then they line up behind proposals which are actually government propos- uh, uh, policies that are simply more flexible or that simply have some kind of partial market element to them. Uh, so I, I, actually, I think the libertarian proposals tend to deserve more respect than the libertarian theory. I guess it again it depends on on uh the flavor that you're talking about and and again I'm, I certainly agree with you that it's some so-called market solutions that have government running the market whether it's for schools or healthcare or other things I think are not <clears throat> are not particularly libertarian or classically liberal. Uh, I want to go back to one last thing on on this issue of um this transition to a larger government. You you mentioned that after the great depression uh or Somewhere in the, in the New Deal, perhaps uh, that we had to go to government provision of social welfare services because charities weren't doing the job. Actually, charities were quite active in the Depression of 1895. They were quite active in the Great Depression. Uh, they disappeared when government got much larger. Uh, you are correct, as you point out in your article that, or one of your articles that, uh, there's always been private. Excuse me. There's always been public provision of welfare at the state and local level, though. Uh, so, so it's never been a so-called libertarian uh, provision of aid to the poor. There's been a lot more private aid to the poor pre-Great Depression. 
But I, I think it's important to point out that the the death of serious private charities fighting hunger and and poverty for large groups of people ended with with the New Deal oh, and, there, the, there, and the rise no of federal. You're, you're federal absolutely spending. right. There is there is no doubt that government social insurance crowded out a lot of uh, charitable activity, uh, and also that. Uh, uh, federal social insurance crowded out a lot of state and county That's and local. That's correct. Now, the question is, is this a bad thing or not? I asked that one time that of an 84-year-old friend of – well, I asked an 84-year-old friend of the family, no longer with us, unfortunately, who had grown up on a farm in uh, Missouri. Uh, and I was discussing uh, uh, you know, Robert Putnam's study about the decline of civic activity and so on. So I asked him because you know he lived all the way back until uh, was born around World War One. You know, did he miss all of these organizations like the Elks and the Moose Lodge and all of these fraternal civic organizations? Uh, and he said exactly what you said. He said, "Well, they all disappeared because of Social Security." <laughs> That's right. He said because the the, the only reason ninety percent of us joined them was because they had health insurance. You know, sometimes the Moose Lodge would have a deal with a doctor who would see all of the members of the immortal order of moose uh, or the elks or whatever. So they provided health insurance. They provided uh, burial insurance, which was very important for people who did not have the cash to pay for funerals. Uh, and uh, also they had old age homes, old folks homes. If, if you were poor, then that you had the fraternal order of elks would have an old folks home. Uh, so I said, well, you know, do you miss that world of diverse, you know, uh, civic society? And he said, hell no. So, uh, you know, there may be people who, who have some nostalgia for that, but I think that I think this actually liberates civil society. You may disagree with me, but it seems to me – I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, <laughs> during the communist uh, rule in Poland and in Eastern Europe, jazz clubs were often used as covers – for democratic political activism, okay? So the membership of these jazz clubs collapsed once you had democracy in these countries. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I think if, if you love jazz, then really if the jazz club, even if it's smaller, now it's simply jazz lovers. And likewise, uh, the Masons and the Shriners are much smaller than they were in the past. But if most of the people who join the local Shriner Lodge are really interested in Freemasonry. It's, in other words, they're not simply interested in economic benefits, which are now provided by the state. Right. Seems to me that that's an improvement for the Shriners. They don't have all of these people who are there just to get, uh, you know, bur burial insurance. Well, I think the question is, uh, if you want to assess what a, a more libertarian charity system, a more private voluntary charity system would look like. I'm not sure you want to look at 1927. It probably would be worse in 1927 than it would be today. We're a much wealthier nation. We have much better ways of communicating and interacting and sharing ideas and raising money for that matter. So when I think about what private provision of some government services would look like, I think about the, the Harlem Children's Zone, which Paul Tuff talked about on a podcast here uh, a few months ago. Where basically an entrepreneur, Jeffrey Canada, facing the fact that the government safety net had done such a miserable job with inner city African Americans and other poor people, 
decided to provide it privately in a different way and does it better. It's a lot of work. He doesn't raise as much money or as easily as um, Head Start or other government programs, government schools, which can use tax revenue. But it's more effective. It's it's more humane. It's more transformative, both for the people who live through it and the people who fund it. So I think the crucial question is, it's unanswerable, so we can argue about it till the cows come home. The crucial question is, is it imaginable that privately, collectively provided uh, social services might do better? And I think they might. They might. I agree. Well, I can't prove it. but Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is, uh, are there enough benevolent billionaires – because it is mostly the rich who you know provide the money for charity. The individuals do some, but it's, it's, it's ordinary middle class, but it's mostly the rich. The only time we had any experience of this really was in, in the U.S. and maybe in some of Western European countries after the decline of feudalism when you had state you know religious welfare, uh, tax-funded things, and the rise of the modern welfare state you know, from the late 19th, early 20th centuries. And at least at that time, uh, the great uh, industrialists and bankers did not see fit to provide a charity and anything matching even a minimal welfare state for people now, uh, which is one of the reasons why all these countries created a welfare state. If you know uh, the British and the American and the German industrialists had had this whole alternate funded model, then I don't think there would have been much pressure for modern welfare state. And you can say, well, now you have Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and they're different. My experience and, and my job, you know, obviously in the nonprofit community, you know, brings me to dealing with uh, very yeah, wealthy people you're, you're uh, periodically. <laughs> yeah, sure. you know, and so what you, it, it, it's it's kind of quasi-academic sector is that uh, the majority of of very wealthy donors are not very interested in poor people or even in the middle class uh, in in helping them out in their own country. Uh, the the big uh, gets, if you're asking for charitable donations, involve either the poorest and most destitute people in the world, say the poor in Africa, you know, a traditional uh, uh, object of, of charity from the West, uh, the environment, and also artistic and cultural and educational institutions like universities and symphony orchestras, yeah. which... Uh, are largely benefit the rich and the upper middle class and their own children. So it's, you know, it, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm open to a suggestion, but, you know, my fear would be that if you got rid of the welfare state, it wouldn't be replaced by uh, money from the rich because they would be spending all the money on zoos and on, you know, uh, symphony orchestras. Well, the, I think the counter argument there is that even in a world where government provision of public schools and funding of public schools uh, exists, uh, there's still a lot of wealthy folk and not so wealthy folk who donate to a private scholarship systems to get people out of those schools, even when there's a zero price alternative. So that, that, that to me suggests there's okay, okay, some but potential. This brings us to a different question. This brings us to a different question, which is they do so because uh, it's very easy to say the, the problem with uh, the working poor and uh, low-wage uh, low workers in the United States is because they lack education, and therefore we'll help them go to college and they'll make more money. But the vast majority of jobs in the United States today, and the, and the majority that are being created, require no higher education beyond high school, uh, and maybe a couple of weeks of on-the-job training. That, that's according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which every couple of years publishes an updated list 
of the jobs with the greatest overall, and it's jobs like nursing aides, janitors, uh, security guards. These all greatly outnumber all of the scientists, engineers, lawyers, professors put together. Uh, and, you know, I, I do think there, there's kind of a taboo in, in the United States, I can't speak for other countries, where the rich are told, well, uh, you can help the poor and uh, low-wage workers by uh, uh, helping them go to college, even though most of the jobs don't require college degrees. But we're not going to ask you to pay your workers more, right? Whenever there's a suggestion for a higher minimum wage or uh, just higher pay or that more of the profits be shared with workers, Democrats, for the most part, as well as Republicans, this is not on the table for discussion. Uh, so, but the problem is that the, a janitor with a PhD is not going to be paid any more than other janitors. No, but because the janitor... in most actual occupations, the labor market structure is what determines compensation. It's not credentials. No, that's true, which is a good thing, I think. Uh, I think the question is whether the world would be a better place if K through 12 education, say, was provided in a more thoughtful and, and uh, effective way. And again, we But did... follow that to your conclusion. Uh, why can't since uh, a lot of people, uh, uh, particularly academics, complain that they're doing remedial instruction yeah. for undergraduates who really, you know, have not mastered what they need to know in high school. So if we had better K through 12, maybe fewer people would be, need to go to college. That'd be a good thing. I like that. That would be great. I think yeah. probably too many people do go to college. It's subsidized dramatically. The consequences of that subsidization have not been fully paid yet. We have, a, we have an impending student debt problem is exactly along the lines that you talked about before. We have right. subsidized it, pushed up the tuition as a result. Uh, it's a labor-intensive activity. Uh, whether it should be or not remains to be seen. We're, there are some technological things coming. I think that will maybe reduce the labor involvement, but right now it's done, generally done in a labor-intensive way. And it's as a result, it's, it's enriched, again, people like me and you because uh, you're a substitute for me. Uh, and – well, That's, a think tank is a university yeah, without students. Correct. So, uh, and and uh, we benefit from the fact that a productivity growth is extremely slow uh, in the uh, nonprofit intellectual sector. So we can't yet be replaced by yeah, uh, that's right by auto, by software programs. It may happen at some point. <laughs> no, it, that's right. It it very well might. Um, let Let's move on to your uh, discussion of economics. So you wrote a. Um, a 10-point uh, manifesto against uh, econ, what you called Econ 101. Uh, I agreed with one of the 10, which is maybe one and a half, which is pretty good. Uh, <laughs> so the, I agreed with the first one, which was the, your first point, that economics is not a science and that there's way too much uh, advocacy without certainty on the part of economists. So we, we agree there. But what else do you think is dangerous or unhelpful about well, well, economics? Clear, a lot of people didn't read our, our piece. We had a disclaimer in there. We were not criticizing Econ 101 textbooks, whether by Paul Krugman or Greg Mankey or anybody else. We just used Econ 101 uh, for, uh, for what politicians think they know about the economy. Say that again. For what? You, you faded out there. It was just, it was, it was, we were using Econ 101 as shorthand for what uh, people with a, a fairly limited economic education think that economics says. Right, it, it was sort of common knowledge, so maybe the phrase Econ 101 is misleading. Uh, but we were just both frustrated, uh, uh, Robert Atkinson and I, uh, 
because again and again, someone will stand up in Congress, you know, or maybe write an op-ed saying, like, economic shows or all economists agree, you know, X, Y, and Z. And usually it's an extremely simplified vision of all activities can be done by for-profit firms in competitive markets. I mean, there is a kind of a, a right-of-center bias to this. Uh, and so we just went through a, a number of things from imperfect competition in oligopolistic industries where the efficient organizations, um, uh, efficiency may actually favor monopolies and oligopolies for engineering purposes in, in, in some cases, uh, to uh, a trade, which is uh, the best example of this. Because, in fact, the, the theory of international trade, all the way back to Ricardo, who has all kinds of, of qualifications for his theory of comparative advantage, is never reducible to the simple thesis that in free trade all sides win. No sophisticated economist, including defenders of free trade in general, like Jagdish Bhagwati. Including me. <laughs> yeah, you know, they always say, well, there's some circumstances. So, for example, Ricardo well, says, well, my circum- theory of comparative. Not, wait a minute, hang on. Not some circumstances. There are, at any point in time, uh, trade has people who benefit and people yeah, who, are, who struggle. Leaders. Well, right. but there's losers or not. I mean, my, my former colleague, Don Boudreau, likes to point out that some people who are harmed by trade but of a particular kind might still be better off than they would be if there were total protectionism. But sir, that, you can argue that's a, you know, that's fair, a fine fair, fair point. point. Fair point. But, but uh, these qualifications tend to get lost in public debate. So we were, we were arguing for a more nuanced public debate. That was the point of our piece. Well, it's certainly true uh, that when things like NAFTA came up uh, or whatever recent trade issues come up, the defenders of, of the bill, defenders of the legislation, NAFTA, will say trade will create X number of jobs and we'll all be better off. And that's stupid. <laughs> you can't count how many jobs. It probably won't create jobs. It might change the number of jobs. Right. And certainly some people will be worse off because of NAFTA than, than otherwise. And the, the, the critics of NAFTA will had said they, to the – and you know, they'd count the number of jobs that would be lost using a right. goofy model of, of relationship between trade and employment that required a certain set of heroic assumptions about data and complexity. And they'd tell how many jobs would be lost, and, and that as if that were the a, a reasonable scientific. Yeah, attempt. we're we're not defending the other side either. So yeah. you see the same thing in, in the debate about this uh, immigration reform bill. So the CBO does a study where it says that there is a very small gain to the economy as a whole over 10 years. And it is small. It's in the billions in a multi-trillion economy. But but they say small but real. On the other hand, uh, there are real losses in terms of lowered wages for at the very bottom of the labor market uh, for uh, native and and naturalized workers without high school diplomas who would compete with with low-wage immigrants in some areas. Okay, that's a nuanced report. You know, there's positives, there's negatives. You can decide whether the positives outweigh the negatives, and, and CBO thinks that it does. This gets translated into public debate, and suddenly we're being told that the CBO says uh, the U.S. will grow rich through immigration, <laughs> right, well, and, there, and nobody will suffer. Yeah, Part of this is so, an aggregation problem, right? It's the idea yeah. that the U.S. will benefit from, and my, right. my side, the free market side, makes this kind of claim all the time. And what they, what they really mean, if you press them – is that most people will be better off? Uh, it's a, it, ultimately, it's a certain 
form of utilitarianism that I find um, my my Austrian side, my Hayekian side finds unattractive, very unattractive. I, I don't care when you ask me, and I, I, I think agreeing here, I don't care if you tell me that the net gain to all Americans is positive, that that means it's therefore a good idea. That doesn't follow to me at all. You, you have to look at it. You have to say how many – you'd have to make an assessment of right. whether it's – because it's not going to make everybody better off. It's a lie. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, the left has its own myths, but, but I think this particular version of Econ 101, uh, it tends to take uh, arguments uh, uh, which are actually complex and nuanced, and then it turns them into this kind of bumper sticker slogan, which is that the more free market solution or the more deregulatory solution is just a win-win for everybody. There are no costs, there are no benefits. Now, I guarantee you, if we're dominated by a generation of real collectivists, I don't think the progressives are very collectivist nowadays. The Wall Street Democrats certainly are not. Uh, but, you know, then I would be arguing against their myths, right? Okay. If they began arguing that you can ta- have infinite levels of taxation and it has no effect on crowding out of private capital and so on. So it's just at the moment, uh, your side, or at least the center-right, more pro-market side, has pretty much dominated the uh, elite public discourse really since the 80s. Not public policy necessarily, but the the way we talk about (laughs) markets and about business and so on. Can can I just Uh, stop you? But when you mentioned, when you invoke Wall Street Democrats, what did you, um, what was your point? You said they they weren't what? I don't think you can call them as collectivist or uh, leftist or social democratic in any, any way. Well, only for you know, their industry, at, <laughs> which is the na- yeah, nature of cronies. Right, right. The, the nature and, of cronies and, and is to say we need free markets except for my industry, which is special. So the financial sector has managed to convince the ruling class and to some extent the economics profession that they deserve to be special, which I find to be repugnant. And every, every industry well, makes this claim. This to me. Explain this to me. Why is it that – See, I think you, I, I consider myself pro-business and I'm pro-market where, where you can really have you know, competitive markets. Why is it that uh, the attempts of what I view as natural monopolies and natural public utilities, uh, and I would include you know, not just water and sewage, but a lot of basic transactional banking, for example, uh, this is a tax. That is, you, you, when these are in private hands, these are predatory monopolies or oligopolies. They are exacting a tax from every entrepreneur, every business, and their customers. It's actually bad for markets. And the best thing for a market uh, would be for them to either be regulated like public utilities uh, or uh, uh, nationalized in some cases. But the, the, what I consider to be the real productive businesses in the United States have been persuaded – that bankers, and remember Alexander Hamilton, first Treasury Secretary, called banking a natural public utility. They've been persuaded that bankers are somehow risk-taking entrepreneurs just like they are, just like Steve Gates and Bill Jobs and so on. And therefore, if the government wants to regulate what arguably is a utility like banking, then this is an attack on free enterprise. Do you see the point I'm making? Well, not exactly. I see. I see part of it. I, what I first. Well, well, let me give you another example. Yeah, suppose, suppose that uh, uh, Con Ed and you know some of these you know natural uh, uh, monopolies 
that are public utilities, let's say the local sewage commission, were privatized. Uh, and then the local uh, sewage company, now that it's under private ownership, uses its monopoly power to jack up its prices. Uh, and then if it goes bankrupt, it demands to be bailed out by the government. Okay? I mean, that would be a parallel. Particularly because a lot of the banking stuff is sewage. <laughs> Uh, toxic. Why, yeah. why, toxic would, why would free market, why would the so-called free market people rush to the defense of this predatory private monopoly when the government tries to regulate them? Well, it seems to me, me the logical thing to do would be to say, we'd rather have the private regulated utility than these parasites who are hurting the actual productive businesses. I guess it depends on whether you think banking is a Natural monopoly. I don't see that it is. I see lots of competition potentially among bankers, among provision of services of the various kinds that we could imagine. We could imagine the security of your money. We could imagine the ability to make transactions at a distance, providing liquidity through credit, etc. So I don't see any reason why that has to be the case. Where I agree with you, and I've said this, um, I have to hold my nose when I say it, but I certainly agree. I would much rather have uh, government regulate and run the banking system than pretending it's a free market system and just bailing it out so that all the upside belongs to the financial sector and the taxpayer pays for the downside. Uh, That's the worst of all possible worlds. Yeah, I I think where you could have real agreement across partisan philosophical lines is against crony capitalism where it's the worst of both government and for-profit. And that if you could go to a lot of these crony capitalist sectors, and I think banking is one, housing, housing to some degree housing is another, another. Uh, higher education, higher education, healthcare. healthcare. We've only described about fifty yeah, percent of the economy. <laughs> exactly. And then you say, okay, look, uh, either we're going to move this in a more market direction where appropriate, or we're just going to make it more government. But we're going to get rid of you know the socialize the losses and keep the profits model. Of crony capitalism, I, I think that could be a, a program for uh, one one or, or both parties. Yeah, I'm surprised it hasn't been. Well, I, you know, my, I like. Well, to but see, but, uh, like but if you're right, and it's fifty percent of the economy, and it's eighty percent of the campaign finance contributions, yeah, then then why are you surprised? You yeah, know, no, that's you have right. Have to have some source of funding. No, that's right. That's why uh, I like. You know, I say that Republicans and Democrats are similar. They like to give money to their friends. They just have different friends. Yeah. <laughs> but they have one friend in common, which is the financial sector, and the reason is that that's yeah. the Willie Sutton theory of of why Rob Banks, because that's where the money is. So it's very hard to be tough on your friends when uh, they finance your campaign. You know, you go back to the last presidential election. It's shocking to me that neither candidate was willing to address this crony issue in the financial sector. You had a a progressive on paper Democrat, you had a Republican desperate to show that he wasn't a plutocrat, and neither of them touched it. It wasn't that they didn't, you know, go into it. They didn't make it the centerpiece. They didn't touch it. And I suspect the reason is is that they are beholden. I think that's right. And now they were always beholden for on banking and business interests, but before banking deregulation in the seventies and eighties, we had this very balkanized and arguably very inefficient banking system where 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 uh, laws against branch banking protected state and local banks against the New York banks. Uh, and once you eliminated those laws, it made life much easier for us citizens and consumers because you, know, you didn't run. have to have traveler's checks to go yeah. to one city to another. But what it meant was that suddenly all of these politicians who could take on Wall Street because they were banked by their little small town bank in Missouri or Mississippi or whatever, they're raising money from the same megabanks. 
and it's uh, it's, it's a real uh, political problem. I'm I'm optimistic in the long run simply because I think that uh, as deleveraging goes on, as the process of uh, inflating away or defaulting on a lot of these overhanging debts that are never going to be repaid goes on, the the overgrown financial sector in the U.S. may continue to shrink over time, and we could get back to a, a healthier situation in which uh, we don't have an overly financialized economy simply because they've had to shrink and, and swallow a lot of losses. But that's kind of a council yeah. of despair. Yeah. I agree. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, which shocked me. Uh, you said that you were pro-business. Uh, it didn't shock me because you're a progressive. It, it just shocks me generally. I, I, I think one of the worst things for my side of the uh, debate is the uh, conflating of pro-business with pro-market. They're nothing oh, to I do with each that. other. I understand that. But people no, and, do that. And, people try and no, I, th- I could, no i'm not I, I, I said i was pro business not pro market for a reason uh i think that it, no i understand the libertarian objection that we're for markets not for businesses i'm not a libertarian i think there are some industries which are not naturally competitive industries where it's in the public interest you know to have companies in, including like defense contractors uh, and in that case, it makes sense to be pro-business, even though there's no particular market there. Uh, that is, don't you would you think, rather have, yeah. Do you yeah. think the defense sector uh, is a little large for what we I get from it? From what we what get, we get from need. it? From what we get from it? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's right. I, w- I would downsize it considerably, but I would guess that my view of the minimal uh, appropriate defense sector would probably be higher than yours or, or most people, you know, along the, the more libertarian side. Uh, I think there are certain, and again, I'm not a libertarian. I believe there are certain traded sector industries that are essential for national defense, which you want to have domestic producers in. Because you, at the end of the day, you don't know who's going to be your ally and who will embargo imports or not. Yeah. Uh, and that's simply, you know, I mean, that, that you may disagree with the judgment, but that's a, uh, based on, on our historical experience. And what that means is that the Europeans will never allow their aircraft industry to be totally dependent on the U.S. The Chinese are trying to build up their own automotive and aircraft industries, ultimately for strategic reasons. This doesn't mean that you're in favor of statism or collectivism or economic nationalism in general. It just means there are certain militarily relevant industries in which all of the potential great military powers are going to somehow sponsor or subsidize their domestic producers. Rather than buy buy the stuff from abroad. It's an interesting argument, and it, it just I think it's just a question of scope. Where, you know, how yeah. broadly you think that should be expanded. Uh, just before oh, we, I get, think, I think, yeah, go ahead. No, before we leave this here, I just want to uh, ask you about one other point you made, which ties into this issue of pro business versus pro market. You wrote that without the support of the Koch brothers and various self interested corporations, that there'd be no significant libertarian, intellectual, or political movement. Do you want to try to justify that? Well, <laughs> and, and, no, it suggests, all- and it suggests that, that the reason that, that people support libertarian causes is, is to encourage pro-business uh, legislation. I, I find that um, untenable, but I'd like you to defend – you can well, defend it. Well, this is my Washington perspective. If you look at what happened to the libertarian movement, uh, it began as a very vibrant group of dissident intellectuals, sort of like the paleoconservatives – where they have their own principles and, and their own philosophies and have debates, and it's largely academic, but you know it's obviously it's got political implications. 
as I understand the history of the movement, and this was explained to me by an angry dissident West Coast libertarian, uh, the Cato Institute and the East Coast libertarians, when they decided to get corporate contributions, just, you know, suddenly they became silent. A lot of these uh, fun, you know, corporate-funded uh, libertarians about crony capitalism, about defense contracts they object to, and so on, in order to be players in the conservative wing of the Republican Party. And, uh, you know, progressives make the same complaint about progressive intellectuals selling out in order to be players in the Democratic Party. So, you know, this is true of partisanship in general. Well, I, uh, But I don't think... I have no affiliation yeah, with Cato. You may, you may disagree with that. Yeah, I have no affiliation with Cato, but I think Cato is a pretty ardent advocate for free trade. They're, they're not protectionists. I think they're a pretty ardent advocate against a against the defense sector being larger. It seems to me they take lots of uh, – they're against agricultural price supports. They're, they take lots of positions that are, quote, quote anti-business. Um, and I think they're pretty good on the financial sector too, I, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, they're pretty good at speaking out against crony capitalism. That would be true with the Mercatus Center that I was uh, spent many years at. And, and I, I think – I don't see any signs that they've been bought out. Well – you know, you influence the climate and the weather, and uh, may, you know, may, may, I don't know. Maybe I've uh, uh, you know insulted them uh, erroneously. You know, but my impression is that the corporations who fund these and it's corporations. I, I do know a case at a conservative think tank, not a libertarian think tank, where one of the uh, uh, policy wonks who criticized defense spending was let go the same day that one of the defense contractors complained to the president of the think tank. So uh, and and you know the fact is there is vastly vastly more money available for libertarian free market think tanks in Washington than there is for let's say pro labor think tanks or pro consumer think tanks. So I assume they're getting something from their money, and it may simply be uh, changing the debate, moving it more towards a free market direction. Uh, but it certainly does not seem to represent the distribution of opinion in the public where libertarians are so small as a percentage of the electorate that uh, Patry Friedman, as you may know, Milton Friedman's previous, grandson. Previous econ talk guest. Yeah, you know, has proposed that since libertarians are so such a minority, they can never win elections in the U.S. and uh, should move to seasteads offshore and create their own sovereign states. Well, I, I, you know, where we agree is that we certainly have a tough time making the case for a, a radical change, as every radical group does, in, in the relationship between the state and the rest of us. Um, what I found, but most radical groups do not have such nice offices and and uh, such deep coffers. That's right. my point. That's interesting. You know, and I actually think the libertarians, you know, if they might have be more popular in the public, if instead of just taking grants from the Koch brothers and writing policy papers, they actually tried to. Convert people, ordinary people. You don't think right? we're trying to you know, do that? Grassroots. But you don't think those of us who – I mean the implication – the reason I found your uh, quote so surprising is the, it was the implication that there aren't people who actually believe deeply in uh, liberty. And there, were, there always have been. There always no, will no. be. No, my, my point is my point is that if all of these uh, corporate and donor subsidies vanished – there would still be a significant minority of libertarians. They would mostly be in, in academics, probably, or the occasional journalist. Uh, and they would be like other uh, uh, different, you know, heterodox political groups, including Marxists, you know, uh, left-wing social democrats, uh, 
you know, communitarians. Uh, but I, I, you know, none of, none of those groups has access to the resources. Well, we're doing better that, than those uh, groups because uh, we've never – our, 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 our utopia has never been tried. Theirs has, and everyone sees the empirical <laughs> evidence. You know, that's communists. They're, they got used to get a lot of money, but now, now it's harder for them. Well, there is a complete contrast, I think, between libertarians and and at least the Marxist socialists, because the Marxists back when they you could still find some. I would ask them, well, what what kind of insurance system do you have after the revolution? You know, like how do you structure the public utilities? You know, and, and then they would say that's a bourgeois question. You know, we'll work all that out after the revolution. Libertarians have these incredibly detailed plans in advance. That's right. <laughs> which makes it more plausible, frankly. That's true. It's, a, it's, a, uh, it's good they, marketing. They thought about. <laughs> well, we're almost out of time. Let's let's just close with a, a conversation about the current state of the American uh, situation, our economy, and our where we're heading. Um, where do you see? Where do you think we should be going? This is a transition point, perhaps. It may not be. Uh, you know, we haven't. I, I've been shocked at how little we seem to have learned from the crisis. Whether you're a, right. on the left or the right, uh, if you blame government for much of what went wrong through moral hazard or housing policy, uh, we haven't changed any of it, other than to put Fannie and Freddie on uh, life support. But they're still alive, and moral hazard seems alive and well, despite uh, attempts to get rid of big, too big to fail. Uh, if you blame it on Wall Street uh, and greed, or private or the failure of, of deregulation we haven't really i think re-regulated any s- important way uh we haven't seemed to have done anything dramatic in the face of the worst recession uh, of of all of our lifetime uh lifetimes so where do you think we ought to be heading what lessons should we have learned and what would you suggest we do well i, I think there are two questions one is the you know the post great recession aftermath where i tend to follow the conventional progressive view that we needed more fiscal stimulus, if you want to call it that, along with accommodative uh, uh, monetary policy uh, in order to get out sooner from this long deleveraging process, uh, which, where we could never quite escape. We could keep sinking back d- down again and again and again. Uh, the longer, uh, more difficult issue is that because of technology mainly, uh, the entire world economy is moving from the manufacturing-based economies of the 20th century, on which all of our institutions are based, whether it's unions or old-fashioned welfare states, contributory social insurance, to a new economy in which much of the productive sector will be robotic. And the vast majority of people will work in the non-traded domestic service sector doing jobs that neither robots nor uh, people in other countries can do. Uh, and it's already about 86% of the population. It may end up being 96%. And neither the left nor the right really has uh, much of a vision about what are you going to do with all of these uh, people where most of the jobs that are being created are in jobs which, at least at the moment, in the U.S. and similar Western societies, pay very little. Uh, it's in, and and this is, these are the jobs of the future for the most part. Uh, uh, retail, hospitality, healthcare is going to grow enormously. And of course, obviously, brain surgeons are paid well, but uh, nursing aides are not. So there are a limited number of options that you can discuss. You can accept a low-wage society of nursing aides uh, and simply provide more subsidies to them, either in the form of vouchers or in the form of public goods. 
you can try to raise their market wages by minimum wages or other market interventions like a shorter work weeks. But I think that's the big question. You know, the big question of the uh, 20th century was you had this, these emerging majorities in developing countries like the United States and, and those of Western Europe of post-agricultural industrial wage earners and their needs created crises and governments responded to them in various ways, both the private sector and the public sector. The equivalent of the urban uh, factory worker of 1950 will be the suburban, you know, medical complex nursing aid of 2020 or 2030 or 2040. And I don't know. because because that's that's my take. I'm on not that's as pessimistic as you are, maybe. Well, I'm not. But I, you know, and I just to give a little recent history, this vision that we're all going to be nurses' aides for each other and that support low-paying job. You know, 20 years ago, which I'm sure you remember vividly, people said the Japanese are eating our lunch. All we're going to be left with is the service sector. We're going to be selling each other cosmetics and doing each other's laundry, and that's a very low standard of living. That vision was wrong. Uh, that vision of the transformation of the service sector was wrong. Now, you could argue it was wrong because the Internet technology came along and, and made that world very why, different. Why, why was it wrong? Because we're not all selling each other. service sector now. There is one. No, but, but that's where most of the jobs are being created. I, I don't. I, well, it's not because of the Japanese. My argument is not that this. No, is I understand. Of Chinese no, I, no, I understand. It's, it's technology. technology. I understand. I'm yeah. just saying that that the the pessimistic view of 1984 or 1986 or 1990, which said that industrial jobs were leaving the United States to be replaced by service jobs and service jobs pay poorly, I think was an incorrect assessment of where the U.S. economy was headed and where it ended up. And I don't. I'm not confident that we're headed toward a world of, of nurses' aides for the same reason. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's coming along. And I really don't know how technology is going to change how we interact. It changed dramatically over the last 15 years, mostly for the good. Now, it's, as we talked about before, there are people who suffer, who have had a tough time in the last 10, 15 years. And I want to try to keep the Great Recession out of it because I think it's masking part of the – it's making it well, look that's why I was talking. This is the long term, right? Trend. Correct. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I don't. We'll see. It's hard to say. But what, what are the, what are the close with the policy implications of that? If you're right, well, I think the policy implications are it's, on on one thing after another. We have to review all of the regulatory, labor market, social insurance schemes, which were premised on essentially the typical worker the typical wage earner, and this will still be a wage earner society where most people get very little from capital in our lifetime, where the typical wage earner is a unionized member of an industry like automobile manufacturing where the workers and the bosses can extract rents because of their market power and uh, uh, share that with the industrialized sector workers uh, in the form of generous uh, private pensions uh, or allowing them to pay for generous public welfare states, and so on. Uh, I just think that that whole 1950s model, which existed in various uh, respects to this day, in different national versions in the U.S., Japan, Germany, and so on, uh, was essentially designed for a society in which 30% or more of the the workforce, then the male workforce, was in the uh, factory sector. And it seems to me that the society we're moving towards uh, where it's largely non-automatable, non-offshoreable personal services, some of which are very high-end, 
and pay very well, some of which are very low end. Uh, the factory type model and the industrial workforce model just does not fit. Uh, and the progressives, because of the, their base in the labor unions, you know, tend to be stuck in this 1950s model, I think. Uh, I think the, uh, what the right, at least the political right, has been saying to Americans for the last 20 or 30 years is essentially you too can be a millionaire, right? We'll have an ownership society and you can invest in the stock market and somehow, you know, this will, you'll be all be capital and uh, uh, receiving capital gains. And that's not going to work. So I really do, uh, you know, you may disagree with me, but I think that uh, labor market conditions and the social wage for high school, and these will be the majority of people the rest of our lives in this country, uh, assuming you're older than I am. At 50, I'm 51. Uh, I'm most Americans in our lifetimes will be high school educated working class people. Uh, and that, you know, what is whether they have a decent middle class lifestyle or not, that's the ultimate test, I think, of these different political philosophies. My guest today has been Michael Lind of the New America Foundation. Michael, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.